chapter 7, verse 1. When the wall had been rebuilt, and I had positioned the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, and I then put in charge over Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the chief of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many do. Now that says something too. He had family members that were really solid as well. And that, that's a big thing too. The, the ability to stay solid in your character alone in this world is so difficult and so challenging. And surrounding yourself with other people that are determined to be true in their character and connect to God is so crucial for you remaining solid as well. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem must not be open in the early morning until those who are standing guard close the doors and lock them. Position residents at Jerusalem as guards, and some at the guard stations, and some near their homes. Now the city was spread out, and a large, and large, and there were not a lot of people in it. At that time, houses were not been had not been built, rebuilt, and my God placed it on my heart to gather the leaders and the officials and the ordinary people so that they can be enrolled on the basis of genealogy. I found the genealogical records of those who had formerly returned, and here's what I found when in that record. These are the people, the providences who returned from the captivity of the exiles, whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had forced into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and to Judah, each to his own city, and they came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ra'amiah, Naamine, Mordecai, Bilsham, and Merithabar, and Benaiah. The number of Israelite men was as following. And so he starts listing all these people. So what's going on? What he's saying is he's positioned guards around the city because they haven't really officially opened it yet. And they want to make sure that nothing gets undermined in their official opening. But the other thing he's saying is that there really wasn't anybody living in Jerusalem. Look, you, you, it's one thing to live out in the fields. You live out in the fields, you're likely to be missed by invading armies or attacking people. People are not really going to mobilize a large amount of troops to come out to one single farm out in the middle of nowhere, attack you, and then move on to another farm really far away. Now, raiders might do that, and if the Assyrians are coming to take everybody into captivity, they might, but that's not going to happen again under the Persian Empire. So raiders have been drastically reduced for the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire is not going to take them in captivity after they just let them go back. But if you're going to live in a city, you're confined. Okay, The city has been destroyed, houses in rubble, and it's not worth rebuilding a city and being confined and trapped inside of buildings where people can easily come and attack person after person after person when you have no city walls to protect you. So now that the city walls are protected, he wants to encourage people to actually start moving into Jerusalem. But he wants to make sure that these people are truly Jewish. Now, I wouldn't see exactly here a ethnic purity only can come and live in the city, although what we've seen so far is there might be a little bit of that thinking going on with Nehemiah like there was with Ezra, but more the idea that more Jewish they are, the more godly, more likely they're going to be godly. And remember, that argument of the less of a foreigner you are, the more likely that you're godly, would not work today in Christianity. Because the body of Christ is not nationalistic or ethnic in any kind of a way. And nations are not tied. Ethnicities are not tied to certain religions and gods like they were in the ancient world. But in the ancient world, being a foreigner has a much greater chance of you being a pagan worshiping a different god because that's the way that culture worked back then. 
So he goes to the genealogical records and he finds the people who came in the first return. Now, why is that important? One, by finding those people who came in the first return, not only is he finding people who are faithful to return to Judah, because people who did not want to be a part of God probably would not return back to Judah and Jerusalem. They've been there for a long time, which means their reputation as a family has now been established, where before they were scattered throughout the Persian Empire and there was no testimony of different neighbors, likely. And now the Jews are all living together, and there's a couple of generations of testimony. Yes, these people are true, and their genealogical records are more easily validated now. And so he goes to them, and he starts inviting them to move into the city of Jerusalem and rebuild homes and make Jerusalem the city that God anticipated it to be, the new Jerusalem. And so this is what he begins to do. He goes through and lists all these different people. Most of Nehemiah chapter 7 is an extract from the archives for the purpose of providing continuity to the past. So Nehemiah goes back and lists the same list that we found in Ezra chapter 2. It's very close to each other, except he doesn't get a total number of people like Ezra did in chapter 2. Perhaps the other reason that Nehemiah lists this list all over again is to emphasize the fact that Yahweh had truly taken care of them, to remind you that this isn't the only return to Jerusalem, and that this return was still existing and still thriving in Jerusalem after all these years, meaning that God was truly faithful to take care of them and honor his promises when he told him to go back to Jerusalem. That brings us to the fourth and final section of the Ezra-Nehemiah book. This one's different. The first division was the first return under Zerubbabel and Joshua in the rebuilding of the temple. The second division was the return of Ezra and a bunch of people with him back to Jerusalem and the conflict with the intermarriage among Jewish people. The third division was the return of Nehemiah with a group of people with the conflict of rebuilding the walls. But this one isn't about another return. In fact, we don't learn of any other returns that ever happen. Because at this point, the book close of Nehemiah is the close of the First Testament history. Yes, we're going to deal with Esther, but Esther, remember, happened between Ezra and Nehemiah, and Esther is taking place in the Persian capital and has nothing to do with Jerusalem or Judea in any kind of a sense. So as far as the historical record of what happened to the Jewish people within Judah and the land of Israel, this is the end. Basically, you have Esther in the Persian Empire and the capital, and then you have the book of Malachi, who is basically the last prophet to ever speak, but probably not too far after this. And then we don't have any more insights in the Jews from the Bible until John the Baptist shows up on the scene in the Gospels. Now, we do have insights from the Jews because we have the, the, the Apocrypha, which includes 1st, 2nd Maccabees and that kind of stuff, and we have historical idea of what happened, but nothing from the Word of God. This means, for all intents and purposes, God closes the First Testament with only these three ways of returnees. And yet, this is an incredibly small fraction of the Jews that did not return, compared to the Jews that didn't return, which means the vast majority of Jews were completely disobedient to the command of Jeremiah to return back to the land after the exile. Fourth division now deals with the renewal of the Mosaic Covenant 
and the restoration of the Jews. So it's going to go back to 440 BC before Nehemiah had, when Nehemiah just had arrived and was building the walls, and it's going to deal with Nehemiah's leading the people in renewals and restoring the people. And here we're also going to see Nehemiah and Ezra as contemporaries. When you read the second division, Ezra's by himself. When you read the third division, Nehemiah's by himself. And you get the idea that, okay, wait a minute. We know that they were both there at the same time. Ezra came back first, but only a few years later, about um, a decade at the most, um, Nehemiah's coming back, and you're like, Jerusalem's not that big. They should have been bumping into each other, right? Like, why aren't they mentioned? It is in this section that we see, okay, yes, they were. And Ezra was serving as like a priest, and Nehemiah was serving as a governor in the same way that Zerubbabel was governor and Joshua was priest in the first return. And so you're going to see here they're working together in this sense. So there's going to be a whole bunch of little individual conflicts that are going to be dealt with as Nehemiah struggles to restore the people and renew the Mosaic Covenant with them. This division begins with them celebrating the Feast of Trumpets the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. These were the three main fall festivals. The Feast of Trumpets basically was announcing the coming of God to earth. And so they would blow the trumpet, and they would all begin this national repentance of sins. They would repent of their sins of ignorance for the whole previous year, and they would repent, and then they would look to the skies and blow the trumpet, the shofar, and they would look up and think, is God going to come? Is God going to come? And so what it basically said was, we want God to stay with us another year in the Shekinah glory of God. But also look forward to God coming in a more physical, more permanent way, the kingdom of God. And so they anticipated that. Then, about ten days later, was the Day of Atonement. And this is where they actually atone for their sins of ignorance for the whole past year so that God would remain with them and actually dwell with them. And then about five days later at that was the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is where they would build little tents, and they would live in them for seven, eight days to remind themselves of living in the desert in tents. And the eighth day they would go back in their house to commemorate the idea of we're now in the land and also look for the kingdom of God. So all three of these festivals were directly tied to the repentance of sins, the atonement of sins, so that the kingdom of God would literally physically come down to earth and dwell with them. And so it's that time period when they're doing this. And so the first part of this was a time of repentance and confession of sins, and it ended with a festival looking forward to and celebrating the kingdom of God coming to earth, a great celebration. Now, only the Feast of Tabernacles is mentioned, but knowing how these three are directly linked to each other, and the fact that Nehemiah was a godly man, very faithful to God's law, and Ezra was too, and the fact that they're doing the Feast of Tabernacles suggests that they've done all three, but the story picks up with the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 7, verse 73, part B, just shows you how chapter divisions and section divisions really weren't placed in the right place. The priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, some of the people of the temple, and the servants, and all the rest of Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month arrived, and the Israelites were settled in their cities, all the people gathered together in the plaza which was in front of the water gate. 
and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which included men and women and all those who were able to understand what they heard. This happened on the first day of the seventh month. So he read it before the plaza and from the water gate from dawn till noon before the men and the women and those children who understood all the people were eager to hear the book of the law. Now, we don't know what the book of the law is. I mean, we know what it is. But the book of the law is kind of a vague term that can mean several things. It can refer to the entire Torah, which doesn't seem likely that they're going to sit there and read the entire Torah as a community. Or it can refer to specifically just certain law codes within Exodus and Leviticus or Deuteronomy, um, which seems a little random. Or it could refer to specifically the book of Deuteronomy, which is probably more likely. Because Deuteronomy was a, a summary. So basically God gave his law in Exodus and Leviticus numbers, and they're scattered with all these narratives. And this is the law. But then Deuteronomy comes along right before they enter the Promised Land, and this is where Moses kind of gives a brief history of the Jewish people. He talks about their unfaithfulness in contrast to God's faithfulness, and then kind of takes the heart of the law and packages it in a abridged version kind of a thing, and basically changes a few laws to apply to them living in the Promised Land. So a few laws that were more relevant for the wilderness get kind of changed and adjusted for living in the promised land and actually having your own fields and your own homes. And so the fact that they've come back to the promised land, they've just entered it, just like Moses was about ready to send them off to the promised land. And Deuteronomy tells the history of the people as well as gives insights in the law. This is more of a natural book for the people to read every year. This is also the book that commanded that each generation read the law and make a covenant with God. So the Abrahamic covenant, the way that you made your covenant with Abraham or with God through the Abrahamic covenant is you circumcised your sons. And then everybody else is kind of included in that. If you were faithful to circumcise your sons, then that faithfulness would also transfer to your daughters and that kind of stuff. And that was the idea. That's all you had to do because the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant. And you just had to by faith say, I wanted to be a part of the people of God. But the Mosaic Covenant required obedience. If you obey, then I will. And if you don't, then I will punish. And so God required that every generation stand up and swear. As a father, I would just include my family in the Abrahamic Covenant by my faith, and then I'd be committed to raising my children in that faith. But in the Mosaic Covenant, my children and my family had to stand up and before God swear loyalty and allegiance to God as a new generation and re-sacrifice an animal and have that blood splattered on all of them. And remember, they only wore about one or two pairs of clothing for most of their life. And so those blood stains would stay on their clothes for a long time so that every time they put them on every morning, they'd be reminded of the promises they had made. It'd be like a wedding ring in marriage. And every time you put these clothes on and you had these blackish spots sprinkled all over because the blood had oxidized now, You'd be reminded that five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever, you made promises. And so by the time those clothes worn out and the whole community was beginning to lose those clothes, then the next generation would be coming in and you'd be doing it all over again as a father. And then by the time that was wearing out, you'd be doing it all again as a grandfather or a grandmother. And so it was a constant reminder of this. And God required that. 
we don't really have many records of the Jews doing this throughout all their years. And yet we have it here. Joshua does it. There seems to be a time when Josiah, the king who like read the law at a young age and was like, oh my gosh, we need to follow this God. He did that. But this is really the only cases that we know of. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are leading this renewal of the Mosaic Covenant. Notice that it's the Israelites that bring this attention to Ezra. Not that Ezra had no intention of doing it, but it's more powerful when they say, hey, Ezra, we want to do this. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a towering wooden platform constructed for the purpose. Standing near him on his right was Mattathiah, Shammai, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masai. On his left was Padiah, Mishael, Malikjai, Hashem, Zechariah, and Meshalom. Now, what is the point? These are not just one or two people leading everybody. There, there, there is a leadership. The Bible is focusing on these two guys, Ezra and Nehemiah, but it shows that they've surrounded themselves with people. They have surrounded themselves. And this also is so important. There is nowhere in the Bible where God calls a sole person to be a leader. Every single time, even Moses, when he's leading all by himself, knows he's still not by himself. Aaron is there, and Miriam is there, and they're right up there as well. And then this, um, the priest of Korah, and Merith, and Gershom, they're all there as well. And then even Jethro comes in and says, hey, you need to find some good men of good character who can help, you can delegate judging the people and stuff. So even Moses, who looks the most solitary, isolated person as a leader, was very well surrounded. And when you see people get isolated, they become corrupt. And even in the Bible, in the Second Testament, you don't really see... Timothy and Titus and all of them talking about, there's not this idea of a sole lone pastor of a church, like has been really popular in American tradition for a long time. And we've also seen a lot of pastors go astray, being all by themselves without any accountability. The Bible really points to elders. The Bible really emphasizes elders, a group of men who are equal with each other and share leadership over things. And yes, sometimes they're called pastors, but only in the sense that they're pastoring the people, not in a sole individual, I am the pastor of the church. There's this really strong emphasis on elders, co-leadership, that kind of stuff that you see in the Bible. And yes, some people have a more out-in-front kind of personality as they lead people as extroverts like Nehemiah and Ezra do. But they've made sure that there are people up there. They're on this huge podium. Probably because, remember, this isn't like you coming to church where there's a couple hundred people um, sitting in the pews and there's a stage and everybody's sitting. We're talking about thousands upon thousands of people standing out in these fields. And if you just got one guy standing in this teeny little table here, it's, you're not going to be able to see them. So they've built this large podium so they can lead it. But Ezra is making sure that he's not the only one on that podium. He's not the only one on that podium. He's not the sole pop star. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in plain view of all the people, for there was he was elevated above all the people. Now, that's interesting too. The book has been opened in the plain view of the people. That's what the narrator focuses on, is the people being able to see the scroll 
or the book that is being read. When he opened the book, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people replied, Amen, Amen. And they lifted their hands, and they bowed down, and they worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. The lower you bow down, the more honor you're showing the person you're bowing down to. Body, chest, face on the ground. It's absolute submission. So all the Levites are there with them, and they were teaching the people in the law as the people remained standing. And they read from the book of God's law, explaining it and imparting insight. Thus the people gained understanding from what was read. So they're not just reading Deuteronomy, they're explaining it. And the entire time the people are standing there. We've got people at our church who like complain when the pastor goes like five minutes over, and they've, only, they've been sitting there for the entire time. Let alone standing in the heat of the day for the entire reading of the book of Deuteronomy. I mean, you know how long it took us to get through Deuteronomy. And I was teaching on Imagine standing the entire time. Now, granted, they wouldn't have been going verse by verse, maybe unpacking everything like I did, because some things were understood by the fact that they were in that culture. But still, like this is commitment. This is commitment. We're pretty lazy as Americans as when it comes to that. I, I've had some students in the past from Uganda, and Uganda is a pretty Christian country overall. Not that everybody there is Christian, but they have a strong Christian culture in Uganda. And these girls would come in and they would say, like, they would stand for four or five hours every church service, every Sunday. They, they would walk miles and miles and miles and miles to get to church. And then they would stand there for five hours and just worship God and praise and that kind of stuff. And so she said, like, she had been in America for two or three years before she was able to go back and visit, like, family there. And she came back and she said, oh, my gosh, Mr. Bacher, America has made me so lazy. She's like, I went back to be with my family, and I stood, and after, like, 20 minutes, I was so exhausted, and I couldn't stand anymore. She's like, I used to do that all the time when I was growing up there. And she's like, it didn't take long. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's one thing we're really good at. This is that community. That's what they're doing. That's what they're involved in. Verse 9, the Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra and the priestly scribe, and the Levites who were imparting understanding to the people said to all of them, this is the day, this day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping when they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go and eat delicacies and drink and sweet drinks and send portions to those whom nothing is prepared for. This day is a holy to Yahweh. Do not grieve, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. Now, when the people were hearing the law, they were incredibly convicted. And they should be, because if you remember anything about Deuteronomy, like the first several chapters is just Moses saying, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck. <laughs> like, he, it really is. He's just listing. You remember when you did this and screwed up? Yeah, I do too. You remember when you did this and screwed up? Yeah, I do too. And he's like, he just keeps going there, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is not a motivational speaker. And so, and then he says, like, and all this kind of stuff, and God's been faithful to you, and God's been faithful to you, and he's like, and then, and then on that day, when you completely turn away from him, and I know you will because that's what you're like, you will go into exile. Like, that's Moses' giant speech. It's like, the prophets weren't kind. I, I love Samuel, too. Samuel's like, see, when you complain about the king that you wanted, and he's oppressing you, taking your daughters, and da, 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 then remember on that day, I told you so, and don't come and complain to me. And then he just leaves. 
I mean, you read the prophets too. God's not very kind either. And when it comes to sin, they don't pull punches. They're convicted. This is a festival celebration. And they're like bawling their eyes out because they realize, because this is what the word of God is. It's supposed to be a mirror to who we truly are. And so Nehemiah doesn't want to lose it. Like Nehemiah wants them to be worshiping and celebrating God. And so he says, no, 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 this is supposed to be a celebration of who God is. So take your food sacrifices that you've come as wealthy people, go home and celebrate with your family. But notice too, he says, but also provide for the people around you who couldn't offer giant sacrifices like you. See, when God had them do sacrifices, he had different levels. If you were extremely wealthy, you required to sacrifice an ox. If you were kind of like middle class, not that that existed back then, but that little bit of the idea, you were a sacrifice of lamb. And if you're extremely poor, then it was turtle doves or pigeons or something like that. That's not much of a meal for your family to have a couple pigeons. What God is saying is for you wealthy people who were sacrificing oxen and lambs, then you, you, you share some of your food with the people who are sacrificing doves. He wants them to celebrate. He wants to keep the momentum of the worship of God going. Verse 11, Then the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not grieve. So all the people departed to eat and drink and to share their food with others and to enjoy tremendous joy, for they had gained insight in the matters that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the family leaders met with Ezra, the scribe, together with all the people and the priests and the Levites to consider the words of the law. And they discovered written in the law that Yahweh had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in temporary shelters during the festivals of the seventh month, and that they should make a proclamation and disseminate this message in all their cities in Jerusalem. Go to the hill country and bring back olive branches and branches of wild olive trees, myrtle trees, date palms, and other leafy trees to construct temporary shelters as it is written." Once again, they come to Ezra and they're saying, hey, we've been at home for a while and we've been thinking about it and we really think that we should do this festival that we just got done learning about. I mean, we've learned a lot lot of festivals, but we're in the process of this festival. And that's huge. This is like very powerful too because this is like the third time that we've seen Ezra or Nehemiah just teach and not tell the people this is what you should do, but rather let them come to their own conclusion. And this is a powerful way to teach is there's one thing to say, this is what this is what God requires of you. This is what is expected and that kind of stuff. And then just kind of walk away and allow the Holy Spirit to do the conviction and allow the Holy Spirit to move them. Because when they come back and say, I want to do that, that's way more powerful. I mean, this is what you want to see in your kids, right? You don't want to be like, you should do this and this and this and this. You want your kids to come to you and be like, mom, dad, I've got a great idea. Like, I want to start collecting food for the food pantry. I mean, that's what our middle daughter just came to us. Like, she started gather, gathering like granola bars and all this kind of stuff, just random little things. It was like, but her heart was in the right pay, place, and that was totally her motivation. And so that's what you want to see. You don't want to be like, you have to do this, and we have to give up our food right now, and, and give up your stuffed animals. Like, you want them to say, I feel like I really want to do this. And that is powerful. And that's way more ownership. And that's going to stay with them way longer as well. And it's going to change them at a deeper level. Not that pointing the finger in somebody's face and rebuking them is not ever appropriate. And that can't do, God can't use that either. 
But there is a greater power for ownership. There's a greater power in ownership. Ezra with his faults, and maybe not always correctly interpreting the law in my opinion, still was a very good teacher in the way that he allowed people to come to their own convictions and their own conclusions. He didn't seem to be the Bible thumper. Now, once again, there's a time and a place for that because the prophets were big-time Bible thumpers. But there's also a time and a place for just allowing people. And that's where the wisdom and the Holy Spirit comes in play. Like, God, what is it that I'm supposed to do now with this community and with my family at this moment? Not what you think. Well, Ezra did it. Well, yeah, but I could also say, well, the prophets did this. It's the time and the place and how things are approached. One of the things they're told to do is get all these tree branches. But notice that they're mostly evergreens. And they're very aromic and smell. And so the idea is you're building your tent with this. and it's. But the idea is you're bringing all these fragrant aroma into your tent. And it's going to smell good. Verse 16. So the people went out and brought these things back and constructed temporary shelters for themselves. Each on his roof in his courtyard and in the courtyards of the temple of God and the plaza of the water gate and the plaza of Ephraim gate. And so all the assembly which had returned from the exile constructed temporary shelters and lived in them. And the Israelites had not done so from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until the day. Everyone, so that lets you know that even though Josiah had led them in a revival, renewing the, the Mosaic covenant, they hadn't celebrated this festival since the time of Joshua. That's huge. That means that they didn't really celebrate most of the festivals that God laid out for them. Even though God said, do this forever in remembrance of me. Verse 18, Ezra read in the book of the law of God by day by day from the first day to the last, and they observed the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day they held an assembly as was required. So they didn't just live in these tents for eight days. They also came every single day to have the law and be taught it day after day after day after day. This is like church for all week. 